0: Let me point out, and I want to make this particularly clear. She made her first attempt at Coca, bon, Coca, <laughs> Coca. I can't say. It. Thank you.
1: She went to the beach. It's the Clear as Mud podcast, where we look at the funny and not so funny sides of bad communication. Join us as we ask, why is it so hard to get your message across? Take it away, Lawrence and Ray. Welcome to episode 8 of Clear as Mud. Now, Lawrence, as you know, there's a federal election on in Australia. Well, News Limited, owned by Rupert Murdoch, has launched a competition called Super Voter, where people can pick the winners of all 151 seats being contested in the election, and the winner gets. Wait for it, a golden democracy sausage trophy. Wow, pick 151 winners for a sausage trophy. Now, the thing is, this competition is being run, as I mentioned, by News Limited, and they're a, a fantasy football league called Supercoach, which is basically a gambling company. So, here we have a major company that's creating a gateway drug to encourage people who don't necessarily gamble, but who have an interest in politics, to get involved in gambling. Now that sounds like clear as mud to me.
0: The thing I don't like about this is, now I'm, I myself, and I'm not a gambler, and I have no interest, but I might take a punt trying to decide who is going to win in my area, so I think it's a way of encouraging the non-gamblers to, to learn how to gamble using this internet voting system. It's, and it's quite, it's quite dangerous, I think, Ray.
1: Yes, yeah. I, I think that really this hits at the fact that the whole concept of online betting and things related to it need to be regulated. Now, I don't know exactly what that yeah. uh, would look like, but you know, the way that things are headed at the moment is, to me, is not a good thing. So let's get into this week's The Good, the Bad, and the Hilarious. Okay, Ray, I've
0: I've got an example of a good communication this week. Now, have you heard of this guy James Corden, a British guy uh, who uh, who hosts this late night CBS show called the Late Late Show in the US?
1: Ah, uh, yes, 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 I know him. Yeah,
0: yeah. People will probably know about his uh, a carpool karaoke, where he um, has a, a guest, usually superstar singers, you know, to come and sit next to him as he drives around in the city and singing together so that's that's James um uh, Corden he's a, in fact a, a, a well established actor in UK before he decided to take on this show so he took on he took over from David Letterman, who has been the show you know for 30 years in the, uh, in the this late late show in the US Ooh. and and it became this particular segment of his carpool um, karaoke has become a social phenomenon a cultural phenomenon a success and he has guests like Mariah Carey, Adele, Justin Bieber, even Elton John and Paul McCartney, you know, Stephen Wonder, and so forth. Yeah, and even Michelle Obama actually um, had a segment, uh-huh. um, you know, joyriding and wow. singing while he was drives around the <laughs> the White House and so forth. Right. The point I want to make here is that the reason why is is good communication is that. It has become a a viral and everybody loves it. I think I think for the reason that it, it depicts the ordinariness of people, of superstars. Even though you might be a superstar, you might be a, a great singer. But once you get into a car, you're just like, you know, you and me, just ordinary people who goes around singing as you're driving. Uh, and they have banters, they have jokes with James and so forth. Now... So, have you seen any of this segment, Ray?
1: Yeah, I've seen some of the clips on YouTube. I mean, I agree it is a really good way for famous people to present themselves, their brands, I guess, as you know, being ordinary and authentic and down to earth and all that. But let's face it, their voices are much better than ours, even if they're singing in a car. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the, the good thing about that is that are, there's so much happiness. Uh, there's unbridled joy and happiness when they sing, and when they joke with each other and so forth. So that's I think that's there's a certain uh, magnetism, I guess, a certain uh, element that sort of make it go viral. But what's also clever is that he's able to use this particular segment, all right, and he then used, and then he 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 amplified this on social media. And that increases his fame and people pass the links around because they say, oh, have you watched, you know, Stevie Wonder sang this song. Oh, you should watch it and so forth. And he's and he's singing it with James uh, and so forth. So it's quite it's quite good. In fact, I, they were thinking that now that he's left the show, that he could make this Particular segment, the the Karpu a, a standalone franchise, and ah. he could come up with a own, his own series. Yeah, on his just on his own. Yeah. So that's a great example of 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 a good communication.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, I've got a bad example for this week, and my bad example is a company that has been as clear as mud in its advertising and. I'm happy to report that they've finally been caught out. Now, Travago, the hotel comparison website, has been fined $45 million in Australia for misleading advertising. Now, for years, they've been promoting the fact that their whole business model is based on giving punters the cheapest rates available on hotels. And that's what they publish on their website. you you know, look it up, you do a search, and it gives you the cheapest rate that you can find on that hotel. Well, surprise, surprise, someone worked out that, in fact, the Trivago algorithm favored whichever online hotel booking site paid the highest cost per click fee, not the one that was the cheapest for the customer. And they'd put that listing up the top mm. rather than the cheapest. Now, this is on top of the exorbitant commissions that trivago charges hotels that list on the site and these exclusive agreements that they force hotels to sign that makes them promise they won't offer cheaper rates to anyone than they offer via trivago and of course trivago gets his commission now trivago also misled consumers by using strike-through prices you know which gave the false impression that trivago's rates represented a saving, when in fact, they often compared a standard room with a luxury room at the same hotel. Ironically, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission's investigation uncovered that Travago skimmed at least $58 million through these click-through fees, but the fine was only $45 million. So even though the fine is huge, it's less than the amount of profit that it generated. So my question is, where's the incentive for Trivago to stop doing it? Mm. So I see all this as just a reminder that when big tech tells you that they're just here to help you, you need to look behind the curtain to see what's actually happening. As my crusty old journalism lecturer used to tell me, always check your facts if your mother tells you she loves you check it out yeah especially on mothers day isn't it <laughs> that's right that's right so if travago tells you they love you so if travago says it's cheap well you better check it out
0: yeah yeah i think it's very unethical you know for them to mm. you know use all those tactics you know to hoodwink Oh, in the name of profit, I guess, you know. So but this this time they got caught with a hand in the cookie jar. Yeah. Uh, but as you say, you know, it may not be enough.
1: Mm. Mm.
0: Now I've got a hilarious one for you, Ray. Now, we talk about these people trolling trolling each other on the social media uh, and so forth. But have you heard of somebody trolling a company? Oh. Well, this happened to, to an airline. So, you know, Ray, I'm sure when you travel, I'm sure there must be in the past and then perhaps in the future where your luggage will get lost, right? While traveling. So this happened to a couple mm. whom they got married in South um, Africa. So they live in UK, just outside of London. And they were traveling back South Africa and they have to stop um, in in with all the lakes in, in, in Dublin, from Dubai and so forth, right? And so, we they were on their last leg from from Frankfurt, uh, jumping on the plane to get back to the United Kingdom, uh, and they had four luggages, and they got left um, on the tarmac. Now, how do they know? Uh, they know because they have what what we call the uh, Apple Air t- Air Tags. You know, so, so those are those small little things where you can put in your luggages. And using Bluetooth technology, they can actually track how their bags travel with them. So when they got back to UK, three of their bag luggages arrived and one uh, was lost. And so using this technology, they tried to track where those where the third luggage, uh, where did it go? Where did it go, right? So they track it to various, to one place called Pimlinko, uh, somewhere in in London, right? And they waited three days, you know, for that luggage to arrive. It didn't arrive. Send lots of emails, uh, messages to the company, to the courier company, and of course, you know, nothing happened. And then it was, I think, it was thirty six hours later that they got a letter, a note from the CEO's office saying that they are looking into it. So apparently, the the airlines don't have this mm. technology to track the luggages the way that. That the consumer, where this couple has right, and his, his, the husband's name is Elliot. So anyway, he got so fed up, you know, after thirty-six hours, he put on a YouTube a video showing where the bag has been left, I, even PowerPoint slides of all the debacles and all the correspondence, and show you know how the airlines has you know completely stuffed up. So so it's quite hilarious that that you know a, a consumer, for example, can actually track the luggages, okay, What a company and the courier companies couldn't. So the lesson here is that, no, with all these technologies, you know, if you're a company, you better be better than consumers because they would, you know, uh, they would make you accountable and it would embarrass you. You know, what do you think of that, Ray?
1: Yeah. Well, I suppose this is an example where big tech can help you out there, but it is a bit embarrassing that the company wasn't able to find out where things were but but Apple helped them uh, to do that yeah it's, it reminds me a bit of that you know the example we talk about in class often about united breaks guitars you know about what yeah. sort of the power of the individual if you like and i don't know if you recall but it was that fellow who was a musician and his guitar got damaged by the baggage handlers and united wouldn't admit that something had happened wrong so he ended up writing a song about it to get get some justice and he used youtube and became really famous on youtube as a result as always please send through your own suggestions to the good the bad and the hilarious at clear-as-mud.org For our expert interview this week, we're returning to our discussion with George Orwell expert Mark Satta, who we spoke to back in Episode 1. In the first half of the interview, Mark explained the concepts of Newspeak and Doublethink, which Orwell introduced in his dystopian novel 1984, and we focused our discussion on how the language used by Vladimir Putin has echoed what Orwell wrote about. And I'd like to encourage you to go back and listen to episode uh, one, if you haven't already, or if you'd like to revisit that. Now, in the second part of our interview, the discussion broadens into how newspeak has been used by other politicians, most notably Donald Trump, and what concerned citizens can do to counteract this sort of anti-truth talk from government and business now, you know, as much as I'd like to think that this totalitarian creature over there, Putin, is, uh, it's separate from what we experience in, in political life and, you know, he would be the only person who'd be doing something like this, of course, the reality is that this has been used by politicians, well, probably even since before um, Orwell came up with the term. Can you talk about what you've seen in how other politicians... Uh, have manipulated language?
2: I think, you know, as an American, well, this isn't true for all Americans, but my from my perspective, like the obvious figure that comes to mind is Donald Trump. I think there are a lot of similarities in uh, what they do. I think Trump both has this tendency to sort of like double speak. At some point during the Trump presidency, the Department of Agriculture decided they were going to stop using phrases like climate change and use phrases like extreme weather instead. It's just this way of like, you know, change the words and hope the problem goes away kind of thing, Um, which is of course not how it works. Kellyanne Conway's claim about alternative facts, of course, is sort of like paradigmatic here. What the heck is an alternative fact we've been asking? I still don't think we have a good answer because I don't think conceptually you can have Mm. a good answer. But uh, starting with smaller things like Trump, lying in the face of all evidence that his inaugural crowd was larger than Obama's, Mm -hmm. to the current big lie about the 2020 election having been stolen, I think repetition and brazenness are Trumpian tactics as well. And for a lot of the similar reasons, I think Trump helps generate confusion, I think he helps generate exhaustion, and I think he helps generate tribalism. I think these are all things in the Trumpian toolkit. When
1: you were talking about Putin, I just kind of had in my mind, you could just insert the word Trump. And in most cases, it would seem to fit for that. And you mentioned earlier in the interview about 1984, the Ministry for Truth was the organization that was actually pushing out disinformation. And remind me again, what's the name of this new social media platform that Trump is trying to get launched at the moment. Isn't it called the truth or something?
2: <laughs> I, I don't actually know, but there have been multiple iterations and I know, I know what you're talking about. It is some sort of like really on the nose sort of name. Uh, and I'm blanking on what it yeah,
1: is. Well, I actually think it's called the truth.
2: This might be called the truth.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. And we, everybody knows what's actually going to come out of that. And, uh, and very little of it is likely to be the truth, but um, mm, yeah right. so
2: but somehow labeling it, there's some power in that
1: yeah, yeah
2: it's not the power to make it truth, but it is the power to maybe sway some public opinion
1: mm. So as someone who's lived through this the whole well, I won't call it the Trump era because who knows whether it comes back again. but do you think that the experience of having someone like him, in office has changed the rhetoric in general that people have
2: about the truth? Um, Yeah, I, I, I think that Trump's presidency did change rhetoric about truth in a variety of ways. I think some of those ways have actually been helpful. There's been sort of a push for acknowledging the objectivity of truth in response. So I actually think some people are now more thoughtful in their political lives than they were five, ten years ago because they've sort of been hit with a a fire hose of falsehoods and it's caused them to develop methods of responding that require them to be thoughtful about the truth. So that's the the pro. I think the downside is, uh, at least in the United States, there are a number of politicians in Uh, especially in the Republican Party, that are sort of mimicking Trump's playbook. Um, There's a way in which he has normalized a different kind of lying. Like, you know, politics, uh, it's not as if politics was without lying before Trump. But this sort of like brazen disregard of obvious shared facts that contradict. Uh, It's become more common, I think, for Republicans to make sort of outrageous claims that can be easily falsified, yet they seek to sort of like bulldoze people into submission anyways. So, you know, I think this is, this is also part of why we're continuing to see increasing polarization in the United States as um, these divergent responses are, are picked up by different portions of the population.
1: Mm. What are some examples you can think of of how this sort of manipulation of language is used, not just by politicians, but others in public and private life, um, you know, big tech, for example?
2: Yeah, I think um, particularly if you adopt the framework of thinking about one of the goals of misinformation and of political lies is just to create confusion, there are some real obvious parallels to uh, the commercial front. So the scholars Eric Conway and Naomi Oreskes, uh, they've got this great book called The Merchants of Doubt. It's got some long subtitle. I don't remember what the subtitle is. Mm. But what they document there is basically kind of a propaganda playbook that's been used several times in the United States the, the first iteration of this was with smoking. So you've got the big tobacco companies that don't want to lose profits um, when everyone finds out that smoking causes lung cancer and other health problems. And as the science was becoming clearer and clearer and clearer on this matter, the strategy the tobacco companies took was just to create doubt, um, there's this, this line that's become kind of famous from one of the tobacco executives, apparently said, doubt is our product. So this idea that all you need to do is create enough confusion, enough doubt, so that people don't feel confident in saying, well, we all know that smoking causes lung cancer, so we have to act accordingly. Um, so it's just that matter of like muddying the waters. I mean, this is this is part of why your your podcast name is is so fit so fitting. Like um, <laughs> you know, they, they want things to be no clearer than mud about any of these topics. So a lot of mm. the same figures, um, same people have been you. They've they've been involved in subsequent campaigns, things like acid rain, then climate change, um, all all sorts of things. So it's, it's the same playbook. When the science starts lining up on one line, create enough pseudoscience, fabricated dissent, that for, from a layperson's perspective, it can reasonably look like chaos, when really it's not chaos and confusion. It's a lot of alignment with a few loud voices trying to fabricate the doubt, really.
1: And that sounds exactly like the debate on climate change at the moment, I think, is yeah. what you're describing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. And that's one of uh, Oreskes and Conway's points. Um, Like the one of the modern iterations we have right now of this program repeating itself is with climate change. Yeah. And Hmm. the climate change rhetoric.
1: So where do you think this type of activity is kind of taking us as a society? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, 1984, well, you're not sure about the appendix, but in general, the book doesn't really have a happy ending. Is that of is that where we're headed? Um.
2: Oh, yeah, that's that's a tough question. You know, at this point, I particularly thinking in the United States, it seems like it's there's a viable route by which I see things only getting worse. I also think there's a viable route by which sort of like the sort of cognitive tension that you live in this sort of like high intensity Trumpian environment. It's like maybe something's gotta give, something will break, and things in that breaking will sort of actually get better. It's hard to say. I think I am encouraged by all the thoughtful work that political figures like Trump and Putin have spurred for people thinking about how politics ought to work, about the nature of truth, about the power of language. And I think there have been a lot of really productive conversations, um, both you know amongst people and, in academic writing and in popular writing about the interrelationships between language, truth, and politics, and the importance of careful thinking, good writing, etc. Is that enough to save the day? I don't know. <laughs> no idea, but it creates some hope.
0: Uh, yes, uh, Mark, what do you think the role of social media plays in this context?
2: Yeah, I think the role of social media is huge. Okay. Um, so I'm actually, I'm teaching a, a, a seminar this semester on the philosophical foundations of free speech. And the last two weeks, we've been reading material connected with this. So two scholars that I think do some really nice work in this area are Zeynep Tufekci and Tim Wu. And they both have a sort of similar thesis, which is namely, social media has transformed a locus, and what is that locus? It's sort of like a locus of control. Before, when there were limited channels of communication, newspapers were expensive. There were only so many radio waves, etc. The way that someone exercises control over the narrative is controlling the channels of communication. Tufekci gives this really powerful example. She says, in the 1960s, in Turkey, when there had been sort of like a military takeover, there was a big soccer match scheduled and the uh, military group that had enacted the coup they were worried about the announcer saying something political during the soccer match so what they did was they actually just held a gun to the guy's head during the match so he wouldn't say anything but it's such a good example because there was literally as she, she puts it one choke point all you have to do is stop this one guy from talking and you're exercising control social media has 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 wrecked that. That's not how it works anymore. Everyone can have a blog. Everyone can have a Twitter. Anyone can have it. Or have have a podcast. Yeah, yeah, or a podcast, right. (laughs) So the switch comes, the control is no, exercising control of the dialogue is no longer controlling the channels of communication. It's controlling people's attention. So social media, um, these social media behemoths like Facebook and Google, which you know owns YouTube, Twitter, they have so much power to determine where our attention goes. Um, So Tim Wu actually has written a book called The Attention Merchants, which sort of centers this idea of attention. So what social media has done has changed how one exerts power over the narrative. The way you get power over the narrative now is you get people's attention. When there's so much going on, so much talk, so much communication, so much noise. Your power is tied to the ability of getting people's attention, not merely the ability to speak or to write or something like that. And of course, there are all sorts of problematic ways in which people can get our attention. You can make your falsehood super interesting and very juicy. The truth isn't always as interesting as the lies. Um, the truth may be more novel and engage strong, or sorry, falsity may be more novel and may engage our emotions in the ways that truth don't. So suddenly you can get a lie to fly around the internet and truth come limping afterwards, which I think is as, uh, a modern day paraphrase of something Swift said basically about the truth flying and, or sorry, falsity flying and truth kind of limping along afterwards.
1: I'm sure I've read recently about studies that have been done showing that false information becomes viral much faster than than putting truth out there in on social media. So that's exactly, you know, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's this idea. I, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, idiom that the the best remedy for bad speech is more speech something like that. It's, it comes from an American legal case where a Supreme Court justice said this. He didn't really say that. That's actually a bad paraphrase of him that I don't think accurately reflects the opinion, but it's been taken up in common parlance. But um, oh. this this idiom has come to feel particularly hollow given what you just said. The fact that you, you can't always just more speech your way back to the same audience. If the truth is flying and has gone viral, there's there's no way to ensure that some sort Mm. of corrective uh, or retraction is going to spread in the same sort of way. Mm.
1: Yeah, good point. So to uh, wrap this up, as concerned citizens, what do you think that we should be doing at various levels to help counter the phenomenon of the manipulation of language that's been going on?
2: I like that you say at, at various levels, because I think the solutions do need to come at various levels. I think the, the biggest thing is to sort of make systemic changes. And I think that's going to depend a lot on the uh, individual nation. So, for example, I think in the U.S., we need to not vote in liars. <laughs> we need to use that as... Easy, uh, yeah. Right, right. Um, easier said than done. Believe me, we're
1: having the same issues here in Australia. (laughs) It does seem
2: like a global problem, Mm, doesn't it? That's for sure. Yeah. So part of it is, you know, there's this bad sort of feedback loop. If you get someone with demagogic tendencies who uh, gets a position of power, they tend to create rules that make it even easier for sort of corrupt people to get power. I think about all the different ways in which voting is sort of gerrymandered in the United States. People don't have an equal mm. voice. So, um, roles that people can take to sort of counteract the maldistribution of power, that's one sort of systemic thing. Of-, of course, I've said something pretty vague. How you do that in practice is hard. And I think all these sort of systemic changes are hard, which is why I end up often talking about sort of like personal level changes, which are also important. But I feel like I need to talk about systemic first, because what I don't want to say is, look, if you were a more virtuous user of language or a more virtuous thinker, then everything would be solved, because that's just not true. But of course, we can, in our own small ways, try to be more virtuous thinkers, um, try to engage in critical thinking also trying to find ways to articulate sort of epistemic standards to others. If someone's demanding a lot of evidence for your position, but they won't share any evidence back, I think it's useful to start having these sort of meta-narratives. Say, look, I'm trying in good faith to provide you with information, but you're not doing the same. I'm not going to keep talking with you if you're going to engage in this sort of unfair practice. And I think it's not always obvious to us that we can and should say things like that. Or figuring out the right sort of way to phrase these things, so I think that's something. I think it's important mm. to keep calling out the liars and the spreaders of bull, etc. Um, but of course, that can't. The answer can't just be do that because there's way too much misinformation out there. Um, we have to be judicious in fighting our battles so that we don't end up exhausted. I, I think there's a way in which a lot of us have gained these skills. Mm. We're more adept at sort of like picking our battles, finding useful language, figuring out, okay, this person's a troll, don't bother engaging. This person's acting in good faith, I'll have a conversation with them. So, you know, I think small wins like that are happening and we need to try to keep creating those small wins.
1: Okay, great. Uh, Lawrence, did you have any other questions that have come up?
0: I just had a thought uh, that in fact, you could develop a whole course You know, in your university, you know, and teaching your students, you know, at a very personal level, you know, this is what's happening. You know, maybe you're already doing that.
2: Yeah, no, I think that that's right. Um, And I I am finding myself wanting to appeal to kind of current political circumstances a lot in my classes. And I I find myself bringing up this talk about the interrelationship between thought, language and politics quite a bit. So it's coming up now in my free speech seminar, Some, At some point, I would like to teach a course on social and political epistemology, which would center these issues even more. Uh, And I think it would be both fun and useful to kind of really center contemporary issues in a course like that, not to mention philosophy of language. I'm teaching philosophy of language next fall, and I'm thinking about how to balance sort of like the classical questions in philosophy of language with all this sort of like contemporary stuff. So yeah, I think that's absolutely right.
1: Yeah, and ethics in general, I think, is something that yeah we all yes. need to be um, do, yeah. talking about more uh, with our students because of the dilemmas that they're uh, being faced with, things that we couldn't have even imagined when we were young. But uh,
2: right, yeah.
1: Is there anything that you thinking? Oh, I wish they'd asked me about that, or 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 a thought that occurred
2: that we didn't pursue that you'd want to expound on, Mark? Um. You know, I don't think so. I think uh, this this conversation went in all the kind of places I, I would have liked it for it to have gone. This has been really fun. Great. Yeah, yeah
1: good. Yeah, it's been fun for us too. Oh, okay. Really, really enjoyable. Okay, well, again, thank you very much uh, for your time. Really appreciate it. You've had a lot of uh, really meaty stuff to add into that debate. Thanks again, and uh, best of luck with your work. And I have a feeling that we'll be getting in contact again to talk about uh, other issues that are clear as mud uh, if you're interested.
2: (laughs) Great. Yes, I'd be happy to talk more. Thanks very much for this invitation and for your time.
1: That's okay. Thank you. Okay. And that was uh, Mark Sada from uh, Wayne State University. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to Clear as Mud on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review, as well as asking you to check out the show notes for this episode at clear-as-mud.org, where you'll find other examples of communication that is clear as mud. See you next time. This podcast is owned and created by Clear as Mud Productions. Continued listening to this podcast may result in uncontrollable laughter, eye rolling, and expanded consciousness. Please see your doctor if the pain persists.